This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You're listening to The Wild Initiative Podcast Network. Learn more and check out all the shows at thewildinitiative.com. Listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, where we talk all things fishing, conservation, and the outdoors. Today on the show, I'm joined by Mike Sprague, founder and CEO of Trout Headwaters. All right, welcome to episode number 14 of the Fish Untamed podcast. Before I get started today, I do have a quick announcement to make. Uh, and that is that uh, both the Fish Untamed podcast and Fish Untamed, the website, are going to be transitioning over to bi-weekly. So podcasts are going to be coming out once every two weeks, and blog articles will also be coming out once every two weeks. When I first started Fish Untamed, I made a promise to myself that I would never sacrifice actually going outside and having fun uh, just for the sake of keeping up with the blog and podcast. And with a couple of things on my plate over the next couple of years, uh, I think it's not going to be feasible for me to keep up with a weekly schedule on both the blog and the podcast, while at the same time trying to maintain uh, a lot of things I enjoy doing in my own time. But at the same time, I do also have fun running Fish Untamed, writing for the website, uh, talking to people for the podcast. So cutting that out also wasn't really an option in my mind. Uh, so I figured the best course of action, the best compromise with myself uh, was just to switch things to every two weeks instead of every week. That just gives me a lot more time to get things done while at the same time not having to put other plans on hold just for the sake of getting content out because that just feels like the worst of both worlds. So from here on out, nothing else will change really apart from the fact that things will be released bi-weekly instead of weekly. Uh, same schedule of articles on Sundays, 
uh, podcasts on Thursdays, just every other week instead of every week. So I hope most people can kind of see where I'm coming from here and won't hold it against me too much coming out every two weeks instead of every week. But I think this will be the best of both worlds. It'll give me a chance to unwind a little bit more. um, And I think in turn that will allow me to uh, keep up with the same quality I have now instead of sacrificing that for my my own sanity and and time. Um, But with all that aside, I can move on to today's episode. And today I am joined by Mike Sprague, who is the founder and CEO of Trout Headwaters, Inc. And Mike describes Trout Headwaters as an ecological restoration design and build firm uh, based out of Montana. Today we mostly talk about the common threats facing uh, the cold water habitats that most of us like to fish. Things like erosion and pollution and things like that. And how Mike's company is working to restore these habitats to to get them back to their full potential. So, without further ado, here is my chat with Mike Sprague. Do you just want to start by um, talking about how you got your start at Trout Headwaters? And I assume you know, part of that probably has to do with being into fishing. Uh, tr- Trout Headwaters, um, uh, really, uh, as a business, we had a we had a client before we we had a business or a company, which is a wonderful way to uh, kind of organically build and, and ultimately to have grown a, a company. We uh, we were approached to to uh, do some work and asked at that point to, to kind of build a team. And um, I guess that was about maybe 550 projects ago. Um, we've uh, been at it since uh, 1996. Uh, effectively, uh, um, we're, we're, we're blessed to, uh, help kind of put the world back together. Uh, we, uh, we restore wetlands and streams and, and habitats. And I think we've done that in, I don't know, 36 or 38 uh, states now across the, the U.S. Over, over these years. Now, what got you interested in this type of work to begin with? Um, I guess an appreciation for the outdoors. I was drawn to it through through fishing, you know, trout. Uh, uh, I, you know, uh, I think someone said once that uh, by by, uh, by following a trout, you, you really they'll take you to some of the most uh, beautiful places in the world. I've certainly uh, found that to be true as I've traveled from, you know, Alaska to uh, Tierra del Fuego and and lots and lots of places. Uh, uh, frankly, in between. Um, and, um, you know, those are our pristine habitats, those, those, uh, cold water, um, ecosystems. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. It's, it's hard to find a trout in a place that's not beautiful and, and worth protecting. What's, uh, what's your elevator pitch for trout headwaters? If you had to explain to somebody in, in just a, a couple sentences to kind of, um, encompass everything you do. Sure. Um, I, I think at the time we uh, entered the industry, the industry was uh, really uh, quite new. Um, but we're we're kind of part of that uh, uh, of green industry, green business. We we um, we restore, so we uh, you know we look to um, alter physical habitats, you know, as they've been degraded um, oftentimes by. Uh, uh, poor management, uh, for example, or, um, you know, uh, uh, human uh, impacts, um, we look to kind of reverse those and, and 
to create projects, conservation projects, restoration projects, mitigation projects that um, uh, restore those and uh, protect those in, in perpetuity, I like to say, uh, which is, you know, forever kind of longer. Now, I know trout is in the name of your business. Do you uh, work exclusively on like cold water trout streams or do you do kind of all encompassing restoration work uh, regardless of what type of waterway it is? Um, we certainly have done uh, projects and sold products into a lot of states. Uh, we, we very much are focused on, on starting at the top, uh, if you will, and um, the top of drainage is right in the, in the highest headwater systems. It's just kind of logical places to start. Um, and, and many of our most at-risk resources, uh, frankly, today, uh, that's, that's what they are. They're these uh, most kind of pristine uh, cold water, highest uh, water quality, uh, highest dissolved oxygen, uh, uh, you know, most rare kind of uh, resources. The, the models, uh, the models uh, I've been seeing, uh, you know, show us with uh, climate shifting and uh, changing that, uh, you know, some of those, um, you know, what we like to think of, I think, as, as trout, trout habitats, those uh, are, uh, are projected to decline by in the U.S. about 62 percent by uh, 2100. Um, you know that uh, uh, that's not a, uh, a great prognosis. So I think that the the work that um, we've been doing in these cold water resources and now for all these years, uh, I, I think it's probably as important as ever. Mm-hmm. I think it's also important to. Um, point out that most of these headwater streams are, you know, flowing into much larger rivers that, you know, then feed out to the sea, and they they could be considered kind of the the backbone of of healthy ecosystems. In that, you you can fix something downstream, but that's not going to fix the root cause of you know where some of these problems might be coming from. But if you work from from the the highest headwaters, you know, now you've got healthy water flowing down into other ecosystems. So I'm sure there's some benefits that are seen downstream of you, even if you're not directly putting your hands on those, those habitats. That, that's exactly right. And, you know, the vast bulk of our projects and our clients uh, are, um, are private uh, uh, individuals, um, uh, pro- uh, property managers, um, uh, investors and, and, and that, you know, a lot of times people will, will say, well, you know, that's great. That's great for them. That's on a, on a uh, private property without kind of understanding what the public good of that water resource is, um, uh, into exactly your point and you're, and you're, you're spot on, you're spot on the, the issues in the Chesapeake Bay, for example, we have a, a number of projects in the in the mid Atlantic today, and you know the projects in the Chesapeake Bay; those are originating in in five different states, and and frankly, flowing for for hundreds and cumulatively thousands of of uh, miles of, of uh, stream and and river uh, into the the bay. The problems in the anoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico aren't originating in the in the Gulf of Mexico; they're pouring there all the way from uh, you know, where the river is so small, you can jump across it and mm-hmm. uh, outside of Bemidji, Minnesota for the Mississippi. So, so you're exactly right. The, 
the idea is that we we do like to start um, in the drainages. We're blessed uh, our firm to work at a at a landscape scale where where we can make real tangible uh, difference to to everyone downstream uh, as a result of uh, some of these projects. And yeah, I was going to ask who your clients are, but you had mentioned that mo- most of them are um, private entities. Uh, what do you find are the primary motivations for someone giving you a call? Hmm. You know, um, I think there are a lot of different reasons uh, that someone might call us. Uh, they don't know how to manage a resource or the river's causing excess erosion or um, they have a question about um, going forward how to uh, handle some um, uh, you know, specific type of, of high value. We think of these um, natural resources as assets. How, how do we manage these high value resources, these high value assets? Uh, but there's a, but at the bottom, I would say for across all of the the clients uh, that we've had, I would say there's this there's this idea that they're going to leave something um, better than they found it. They're going to leave behind something better uh, that's better than the way they found it. Um, and and I, I, that's kind of a common, a common thread and, and a, really a bit of a intangible and a, uh, but, uh, but I think really uh, common to, to our clients. Do you have any larger clients, like any, any businesses or companies that have, um, you know, property along waterways that, you know, maybe the company hasn't treated it well and they want to fix it or they've just come, you know, they've come into this piece of property and want to fix it. But um, I assume that some of the problems that you're facing are probably pre-existing and some are probably caused by, you know, very local um, actions that maybe people want to change. Have you noticed any patterns in that and like in what causes these issues? Um, You know, I think it's true that that uh, uh, folks today, uh, even young people today, have a much better understanding of the importance of our ecology, um, the importance of healthy uh, stream systems and wetlands and waterways and habitats than, than certainly I ever did um, uh, when I was growing up. The lessons that we've learned um, both here uh, domestically and by uh, watching other uh, nations developing or struggling to develop uh, across the world, I think they. I, I, I think that it'll be hard for us to forget um, uh, any of that. Uh, I think that we're smarter uh, today about the need for sustainability, and and I also think, frankly, the the challenges as you start to look at uh, things like uh, climate change and carbon sequestration and. Um, you know, what do we do and, and how do we do it? How do we act? Um, how do we plan? Yeah, I think the challenges at some level have demanded us to, uh, to, to pay attention. So I'm, in general, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think uh, every day the, the uh, earth, um, this planet, this one planet we have, uh, it, uh, it has some challenges. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's also been a shift. Um, I guess I, w- I would liken it to the equivalent of going to the doctor to to actually get medicine to heal versus just putting a Band-Aid on something. Um, and I feel like there's been more of a push lately to actually fix 
the the root cause of the problem versus just putting a band-aid on it. You know, if if there's no fish in a river, you can either stock it with more fish or you can fix the river mm-hmm. so so fish can keep living there. And I think this is an example of one of those, you know, actually giving the place medicine versus just slapping a band-aid on it and calling it good. There's absolutely no question that I mean real restoration, what it sh- it should focus on on you know biodiversity it should provide us resiliency and stability and integrity um natural integrity um and 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 for too long uh frankly we've uh probably as a nation looked for instant or shortcut or um you know someone declaring victory in their own uh career uh, time span. But uh, again, I think there, um, the lessons of some of those experiments, some of those efforts are uh, becoming clear. And frankly, um, the some of the uh, extreme uh, weather uh, that we see and the effects of that to our shorelines, to our stream banks, to our, have also uh, pushed us in a, in a way that we, we do need to really focus on the long term and, and, and start thinking about uh, these extreme events as they've been described uh, uh, as the new normal. Mm-hmm. So what are some of those specific issues that you see a lot of? I know you've mentioned climate change a bit, um, but how, do, how does that reflect in um, some of these small streams that you're looking at? And then what other uh, problems are you encountering is it pollution is it you know agricultural runoff erosion like what's causing or what are the the primary um, factors that you're actually addressing at most of these small streams Um, so first of all uh, any sort of sort of restoration your first step should should be to to figure out um, what what are the impacts are those impacts uh, on ongoing and what can we do to manage or or mitigate the effect of those impacts. You can uh, go and make any sort of physical change in a system you may wish, but without really understanding how that um, system is being impacted by management or mismanagement, I think you uh, there's nothing you're going to do that uh, is going to end up ultimately being successful. Mm-hmm. So you need a you need that to be, and that manage management needs to be really planned. It needs to be thoughtful. It needs to be adaptive. Uh, adaptive, right? You need to to assess where you start and ensure that your changes um, are getting you the direction you intend. Um, uh, we're, we, you know, most of the point source problems, the the pipes going out into rivers and dumping toxic sludge from, you know, the bulk of that, as you know, is uh, across the nation been been answered in our rivers and uh, many places like where I grew up in, in uh, Massachusetts uh, uh, are, are much better for it. You know, I, I grew up in a, at a time and in a place where the, the rivers were kind of spontaneously combusting because the, the water quality was uh, so highly toxic. The, the river I grew up nearest, it, it was too thick to, um, uh, to swim in, but not to uh, uh, too thick to walk on. Too thick uh, you couldn't get. You couldn't uh, swim in it, but it wasn't quite thick enough you could walk on it. And, and it would change colors. It would be bright orange and, and sort of uh, an acrid smell. I lived about a mile from that. 
mess and and we knew not to not to go near it now now what changed was the the clean water act and the these uh, factories and municipalities and so forth stopped uh, stopped dumping um or created a cleaners and scrubbers through technology to to treat the effluents and and the, that river today it has a self-sustaining population of trout you know the canary in the mine shaft for cold water and it was really just us removing those impacts that caused this really large-scale um, restoration. Mm-hmm. So today, today, the problems are really non-point source. We've, as a nation, not all countries have done this, by, by the way, but the U.S., we've, as a nation, we've done a pretty good job of dealing with those pipes. Uh, it's the non-point source stuff now, the, the runoff that comes from uh, both rural areas and... Uh, and urban uh, cities uh, uh, across roads and parking lots and so forth. That's the that's the challenge today. Do you mind uh, just quickly covering the difference between point source and non-point source pollutants, just in case anyone's not familiar with them? Uh, sure. Uh, the simplest way to think of it is 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 you know again in, in terms of a pipe and a discharge uh, versus a, a big sheet flow across some. You know, parking lot field or something else. It's it's those uh, uh, rain-driven, typically runoff events that across those uh, uh, pervious uh, surfaces and and across these agricultural fields that are um, laden with uh, you know nitrates and phosphates and various types of fertilizers and petrochemicals. That it's 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 those effects now, um, as as well as a fair amount of you know, frankly, channel instability that's been created by <clears throat> our development in the floodplains and, and other things in the U.S. that that are the principal challenges today. A lot of what we do is, uh, um, you know, putting putting back, frankly, what what we humans have, have taken away, restoring floodplains, restoring uh, bankside vegetation, restoring uh, stable channels, restoring water quality. Those are the activities that we well, that we've been at now for almost 25 years. Are the is the lack of vegetation along stream banks mostly caused from grazing livestock, or um, is there something else that causes that as well? Lots of things, right? Um, um, lots of lots of things. Uh, sometimes people are trying to improve view shed, so they cut down all that vegetation. Uh, you know, and they replace it, replace it with rock, you know. Um, there, there are lots of uh, lots of ways that uh, we've we've sort of encroached on those uh, buffers and not given these waterways um, enough space. Mm-hmm. Do you mind going through, um, let's say, like a typical project? I, I mean, I'd love to hear about a specific project or two later as well, if you've got some. But just a, a typical project. Um, obviously, I'm sure they're all different, but. When you come in somewhere, what what's the process like? You know, how do you assess the problem, and then what are the next steps in terms of finding a solution, uh, employing that solution? Do you work at all with the owner of the land for for them to do any sort of individual contributor role after you're done to to keep up what you've started, or just how, how does that process work? So. Uh, we we always start kind of at the beginning. There, there are really two kind of broad um, areas. We, we're interested in the owner's goals because at the end of the day, we want to ensure that 
um, those are achieved. Um, we want to also inform what's possible, what's practical, what's cost effective, what makes sense. Um, we want to in, inform that. And, and we start by collecting a lot of field data um, uh, and analyzing that information. Um, we, uh, we, we do a fair amount of, um, of mapping and we do, you know, everything through, uh, scheduling and, um, construction supervision and, uh, you know, the teams vary a bit from project to project. Some have, uh, greater, um, need for, a um, a water rights attorney, for example, or, a, a specific type of engineer, um, uh, so project teams tend to vary a bit. We, um, you know, we also, we use a bunch of uh, uh, stuff that we've invented, uh, products, uh, services that uh, we've commercialized and um, supported uh, uh, different sorts of uh, technologies um, broadly, uh, analytics systems. Uh, the idea is to, to really... Um, reduce the amount of um, a drag on a project, the amount of soft cost to a project, while, while really trying to make uh, take advantage of uh, lots and lots of, of good, high-quality uh, field data. So we start there always. We, we iterate in designs to achieve um, outcomes. We set realistic expectations. Uh, we monitor at the end of all these, you know, and and that's the feedback loop. With, uh, we're able to to see if the actions we've taken, the changes we've made, the um, efforts, the management planning, if all that uh, is effective, we're able to to kind of plot that by monitoring on the backside. And those two pieces, which a lot of times, for some reason, people people skip. Um, the, <laughs> they want to go do something. They just want to do it in the worst way. Um, <clears throat> But, but what I would suggest is that um, uh, you want to do the right thing. You want to be effective. You don't want to waste time, money. At worst, uh, you don't want to do something that, that actually could diminish or damage the some precious habitat that maybe you're not even aware of. Mm. So, so getting getting a good getting a good high quality professional assessment and ensuring that. Um, out of that comes some management recommendations, and then at the end, uh, regardless of what you might do in the middle, uh, but that, that at the end you're you've got a way to kind of monitor your progress. I would say those are the those are the vital pieces. So, what kinds of people do you employ? Uh, I'm sure there's a wide variety of of skill sets needed to conduct one of these projects, but do you have a two or three kind of main types of uh, employees you hire? Um, so, you know, I think of, uh, I think of our team in a, in sort of different, different, um, categories or whatever. I mean, uh, we have, uh, construction people, contractors, we have, um, uh, ologists, uh, um, you know, various types of, of technical people. Um, we, we also, uh, build, uh, technology here. So data, uh, data management, um, uh, big data systems and, and um, that that's become a kind of a bigger part of, uh, of what we're doing. So we also have some skills there again to the project. It, it does very much depend 
uh, what exactly the goals are, um, what exactly the uh, existing conditions are, and and uh, you know what a client's uh, really really at the end of the day trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Do you work with any other organizations? You know any of the any of the typical um, conservation organizations focusing on uh, water in general, or specifically cold water, or are you kind of a standalone? Um, company and and don't deal with any of them oh no we've um uh i didn't mean to give uh impression that we don't work with government and and nonprofits or ngos because certainly we do and we've worked with the charles stewart mop foundation national fish and wildlife foundation and uh we've worked with different chapters of trout unlimited we've done uh, sold product to the u.s uh, environmental protection agency and 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 the blm and u.s fish and wildlife service and so we, we do do uh, we do work with um with government and and nonprofits, but the vast bulk of of really our uh, core business over over these years has been um private money being invested to uh, to restore resources okay. you know the problems are the problems are are, are i think uh, honestly um the challenges are are great, and so uh, I don't think that we should expect that um, you know government by themselves, or uh, to your point, I think, uh, or nonprofits by themselves, or or for that matter, private businesses like us by themselves are going to be able to address these. So together, we do we do have to very much work together. We have lots of partnerships, including with um, the the core network, which is a uh, about a represents about 128 conservation cores uh, across the United States, uh, which we have both working on projects and we're involved with uh, in training to, to kind of put the next generation of of um, restoration conservation stewards um, out on the landscape. So I, I didn't mean to imply that we work only only with uh, private uh, uh, other private business or or individuals. I think you make a good point. I think a a lot of um, a lot of organizations like that have quite a broad reach, especially some of the larger ones like Trout Unlimited. Um, it's it's hard to find a single angler out there who's never heard of Trout Unlimited. But at the same time, um, organizations like that are are sometimes, especially in local chapters, are are struggling to to get the funding they need to work on these projects. And I think having a healthy balance between the outreach of these organizations that, you know, offer things to uh, just the hobbyist angler, you know, those resources pair up greatly with, uh, with private companies who can, who can do the work and, you know, and they can, they can make the money from it and, and actually put the boots on the ground to get things done. Um, but they may not have the same reach as, as some of the more well-known organizations. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, isn't it isn't it kind of funny? I, I've, I've a few times through my uh, uh, through my career, Katie, I've heard uh, people um, you know kind of talk about the fact that we're a private business like that was somehow you know and we're restoring the environment like somehow that was not very that was kind of tawdry or maybe not what should happen or something like it was the explicit purview of of uh, government or or nonprofits to put the world back together. And I, I, I've thought about it. And I mean, just wouldn't this be terrible if we all woke up tomorrow and no matter what, no matter whether we were in government or a nonprofit or private business, we all just went to work on making the planet uh, 
a better place, a healthier place. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't that be a place, wouldn't that be a terrible place for us all? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. Because I've definitely heard that sentiment as well, where, you know, if, if you're a, a nonprofit or an NGO, you're a good guy. And if you're, if you're working for a profit, you must be bad. But, you know, I think it, it's easy to forget that there's plenty of people out there who want to do good work. And, you know, all they need to do that good work is just a, a way to make a living doing it. And, you know, all those, all those people are, are going to need to start their own companies. But um, yeah, it's, I just, it's, 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 it's funny that you mentioned that. It's so, it's so interesting to me because you know the the um, uh, it, it, we we somehow I think as a society we we think it's completely natural that um, a private business should damage the environment. It's just we're not sure they should put it <laughs> help put it back to get, together. Um, so I've, I've just always thought that was funny, and I I would argue that that frankly the challenges are are big enough that they you know we can all pitch in and and. Um, and you know, make a change at a, I think, a really uh, kind of vital inflection point in the uh, the future of the globe. Mm-hmm. So, do you guys work nationwide, or are you specific to kind of the area that you're headquartered? No, uh, uh, we uh, we've worked, I think, now in uh, 36 states across the U.S. We uh, um, I uh, serve on uh, boards and uh, panels and committees in. Uh, Washington D.C. We um, uh, speak nationwide, um, and I think uh, now over these years uh, we've we've sold products into a, into a lot of states as well, as well. So we do have a national footprint. We go where the uh, where the work calls us, and um, we've been fortunate to do that. Now, do you when you're in there doing restoration work? Let's say you do a project, you get everything fixed up. Do you? Uh, generally assume that that will fill back in naturally with um you know species that you're looking for let's say trout or specific macro invertebrates or are you ever doing any active you know restocking of those areas because they've just become completely dead or are they not usually that far gone when you're working on them um you know that's a really that's a really good question uh we um except for newly created sort of offline or contained systems have never been involved in stocking anything. Um, uh, I think there are real challenges and problems for, uh, and the end um, certainly history has shown us this with uh, stocking in, uh, in waterways around the world. Um, <clears throat> so, so typically what we're doing is trying to uh, restore all the building blocks, right? We're trying to put back in place all the building blocks and allowing uh, really, uh, nature to get jump started. Um, assuming that um, we don't work in a lot of brown fields and uh, uh, you know water that uh, you know is exactly poison. Uh, that's not work we do. So, by and large, you know, nature is is really resilient. She she has an amazing capacity um, if you just give her half a chance. And we've seen that time after time after time in systems that maybe weren't considered um, very valuable or weren't considered very productive that really in a very short amount of time uh, could turn into something that um, uh, that would surprise. Now, do you, when you get a call from someone asking um, for your help, is 
do you basically take on any project that anyone's willing to give you or do you are you limited on resources and need to kind of pare down what it is you're going to work on or just do you do you make an assessment uh that some places just need your help more than others like is there a is there a need to trim down what you work on and if so how do you how do you make that decision well um we're actually uh, tomorrow um uh, and I can, I just can't say much about it tonight because it's embargoed to the morning. But actually tomorrow, Katie, we're announcing another expansion. Um, the we ha- we have been uh, increasingly called on to do more and more work uh, that has been requiring us to um, uh, garner more resources, uh, more skills, uh, more skill sets, uh, uh, more individuals, uh, more talent. Um, and and so to that we're uh, you know we're lucky that um, uh, increasingly the the focus is on you know uh, our water and our air and and it, it, you know it's funny isn't it that those are about the only two things humans need right well they need water <laughs> and air I guess eventually a little food and probably some shelter but the two vital things are, are water and air it's it's um, and for a long time, I would say, you know, I'm I'm guessing I'm older than you. Uh, for a long time in my in my generation, my youth, I mean, that was where we put all of our pollutants was either to the water or or into the air. Um, I think we've uh, figured out that's not sustainable. Uh, that um, you know we uh, we have to take uh, pretty good care of uh, uh, ensuring that when we turn on the tap, we're um, you know we're not flint. Uh, Michigan, um, and uh, that what flows isn't uh, lead in a, a liquid form, and, and I think that those again our our attention to that, uh, uh, especially now at a time where um, there's an increased uh, focus on climate change. You know, our waters, our wetlands, these uh, areas, these are our carbon sinks, right? These are the uh, resources we need to maintain. Really, if uh, if um, generations are going to be able to enjoy some of the things that uh, that you and I have. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's becoming um you know fortunately I think that's becoming a more um, commonplace idea that air and water is, is not something that we should be just throwing all our trash into. Um, like you said, it's and that's really all we need to to live. And I feel like most people I talk to these days are of the mindset that we need to make changes. So that's, that's definitely a move in the right direction. I know obviously there's still much more work that needs to be done, but the first step is addressing the, the issue. So um, I think that's definitely a step in the right direction. On that note, do you have any tips for how an individual say they have um, property along a river and either it's in good shape and they want to keep it that way, or maybe it's, it's on the way down, uh, but, but doesn't quite need you know, a professional help yet. Do you have any um, tips for how somebody can improve the habitat within their area? I, I would say that, you know, our, our, our website has a lot of good information, lots and I mean, 650 uh, posts probably pertinent to the um, question and, and at troutheadwaters.com, anyone uh, can go in and, and, um, and pull that uh, general information. The thing that's, that that strikes me is that that you know going forward we want to, and I don't mean to sound critical, but I think that we've done as a country a bit of a disservice by 
uh, somehow uh, segregating or separating ecology and economy. You know, both of those come from the same uh, Greek root word, which, which means home. And, and I always hear it, uh, one is warring with the other, or we're going to have to sacrifice our ecology for our economy. Or if we do the right thing environmentally, that's going to damage our economy. I, it, it, somehow we've separated those ideas. And, and in fact, I would argue putting them uh, at, at war. The, the more we can restore our understanding that you know, to your point, uh, those, uh, to your question, that you know, the folks that uh, uh, were sitting in the wake of that oil lapping up in uh, the BP spill or the, um, the people that turned those uh, taps on in, in Flint, Michigan, their communities, their homes, their properties, they weren't in better shape. They weren't worth more money. They weren't uh, more saleable. They, their economies... Uh, because of the impact of that basic ecology had um, been damaged or at minimum temporarily uh, destroyed. So, so the more we can kind of put those ideas back together, I would say, and the more when you look at your, your own property or you look at a public property that you can start to think about those special areas, you know, those, those green zones between the water and the, the upland, those riparian areas, you know, with the willows and the, the cottonwoods and the alders and those things, the, mo- the more you can focus on keeping those healthy, keeping those intact, um, those provide huge benefit. A lot of times people will look at a river or a stream or a wetland and they'll, they just see the water without understanding. And they'll think, well, that's the, the river. The river's the water. Um, that's, that's not the case. The river's more than that. The river's the that riparian area it's the floodplain it's 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 greater than that so so the more you, we start to i think look a bit more intelligently holistically uh, at those resources and kind of manage those uh, for more than than just what's wet more than just the water um i think the better off we'll be yeah i couldn't agree more uh, especially on your what your point about um, how it seems these days like economy and ecology are two opposing ideas um, and they're, they're treated like like opposites when really they 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 have nothing to do with each other in terms of whether they're opposites or, or related I mean they're just they're each their own thing and they can they can coexist and it's something that I think about a lot when I hear about you know, for example, mining right on the edge of the boundary waters. You know, I'm I obviously use a lot of products that use mine materials, and I'm not I'm not opposed to mining as a concept, but I don't understand why it can't coexist with the protection of you know a beautiful resource, and why we need to why we need to worry about getting rid of one for the other um, versus just making wiser decisions about where we do some of these things. Um, to you know, keep the economy alive, while at the same time acknowledging that we can't sacrifice some of these amazing places that you know themselves provide you know an economic benefit to the country as well. In addition to just their inherent value, um, I've never understood why these why these two concepts can't coexist, and we we can't just try to make the best decision for for both. We have to make the I would I would argue we have to make the best decision for both because really the one depends wholly on the other. 
um, we absolutely must make uh, decisions uh, looking out for both. Uh, without a without a good ecology, you have no economy. Um, you have no resources. You have no uh, uh, capacity for life to grow food. To right. Um, so without a healthy ecology, you have no economy, and and the same is 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 uh, true the other way. These two things are are intrinsically connected, and that we've somehow separated them and and uh, pitted them against each other. Uh, I think is. Uh, it's kind of uh, when you look at it from the right way, it just looks, it just looks sort of crazy. I agree. Um, one last thing I wanted to ask you about that, it, I, I, if you don't have anything prepared, that's totally fine. But I kind of just wanted to hear about if you have one or two specific projects that that you would consider kind of the um, the crown jewels of Trout Headwaters' work. <laughs> you know, just a, a major success story or um, something like that. That if you wanted to share. Um, one of those with the audience? Um, you know, w- we've been fortunate to, to uh, uh, be uh, early to a space that's, uh, that's pretty new. Um, you know, some of the sciences that are being applied to the uh, work that we do, stream, river, wetland, habitat, restoration, conservation, mitigation, some of those, some of those sciences probably in this application no more than 20 or, or 30 years uh, old. Because of that, um, we've had the chance to build some stuff. Um, uh, a couple of things that I'm uh, really proud of, we, uh, we created some uh, technology that um, uh, we commercialized and uh, built, uh, including folks from the Army Corps of Engineers, the US EPA, and a number of others. Uh, uh, a, a rapid assessment system that allowed for uh, stream data to be collected at a at a pace at a rate and a quantity that uh, just hadn't ever been possible prior to that. We we more recently in the technology side, uh, um, really to enable the industry to enable, uh, I guess I guess those that uh, would compete with our company, if you will. Uh, as if somehow there's not enough work for everyone. Um, we uh, we built a, a big data system for environmental big data, again, in cooperation with uh, entities like the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And it's uh, it's got hundreds and hundreds of uh, uh, users. We're, we're uh, uh, handling now something on the order of 40 million um, uh, data points. Um, in uh, in analysis uh, in, and projection uh, in that system, uh, on the ground side, uh, uh, you know, I, I've uh, uh, we've had, we've had a lot of projects. Um, uh, at the at the end of the at the end of the day, to see the response of the vegetation growing or the trout inhabiting the uh, the newly restored channel, or to you know the beauty of the landscape when it when it starts to grow in and it's in use by the um, by the birds and the and the predators hunting the buffers and so forth. I mean, you know that uh, sort of high five moment years after the work typically, or I guess sometimes in the case of newly restored channels, I've seen that response uh, within days. That aha. Thing that 
you can, you know, put nature back just to, you can help her, uh, you can help her restoration. Uh, that feeling, uh, you know, as well as, uh, uh, I guess humans believe we can destroy it, but maybe we can't put it back. We can. Um, and that feeling when you look at that restored habitat, something, uh, frankly, that's, uh, uh, Katie, it's magical. I like that attitude. Hey, we got to address the problem, but, but having a glass half full mindset of, you know, instead of just wallowing in, in the sorrow of some of the, the problems we face today, just, you know, remembering that there is work that everyone can do to improve these. And, and I'm happy to hear that, that things are going well and that you're, uh, you're making a difference in a lot of these habitats. That I know we all care a lot about. Do you want to share just a um, where people can find you if if they're maybe interested in, in contacting you for services or just if they want to learn a little bit more about Trout Headwaters and, and how that can make a difference? Yeah, we're at uh, troutheadwaters.com um, and uh, all of our uh, social uh, media is at Trout Headwaters. So um, uh, come and uh, please uh, leave us a note or or have a look or let us know how we can help. I'd love to hear from anybody. Awesome. Well, we will also link those in the show notes. So if anyone wants to um, go check out the work that Mike and his team are doing, um, I'd highly encourage it. They've got lots of uh, blog posts online as well, talking about their recent work. And I believe you also have a, a coffee table book out too, don't you? Yeah, there's a free ebook available um, of some of the uh, recent work that we've done. Uh, I think it's 60, 60 or so uh, pages that show, you know, projects going to ground and so forth. And it's free. Awesome. Well, I will, uh, I'll link to that as well if anyone wants to check that out. And uh, Mike, I just really appreciate you coming on today and, and sharing the work you're doing. I know that uh, anyone who enjoys fishing for trout should should care about the, the type of work you're doing. And um, I, w- I would encourage anyone to to support you any way they can. And um, otherwise, just, just come and check out what you're up to. And uh, consider consider doing something yourself for uh, sensitive habitats. Thanks a ton, Katie. Great talking with you. All right. Take care. All right. And that'll do it. As always, if you liked what you heard, go ahead and go over to the Wild Initiative podcast. You can subscribe there and get my shows bi-weekly on Thursdays and all of Sam's other shows throughout the week. You can also find my episodes on fishuntamed.com in addition to backcountry fly fishing articles. And you can find me on social media. I'm at fishuntamed on Instagram or my name, Katie Bergert, on Go Wild. And I will see you not next week, but two weeks from now on Thursday and from here on out. where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.